Hello, and welcome to the Dad Jeans Podcast. My name is Didon, and along with my co-hosts, Brian and Harris, each episode will try to unpack, examine, and discuss the DNA of healthy fathering. While all three of us are fathers, the road to fatherhood has been different for each of us. It's our hope that those differences and the perspectives they bring will only add to the conversation. Thanks for listening. In this episode, we talk to licensed clinical social worker, Fiza Jackson. We discuss her experience as a former educator, the importance of protecting safe spaces for children, and the adultification of black boys and girls. But before we do that, let's check in. Fellas, what's up? <laughs> take, <laughs> take five. <laughs> exactly, exactly. What's up, man? What's up? What's up, beautiful people? How's it going? All right, all right. Nothing much. Uh, listen, we have a whole show before each show. And, and I, <laughs> one, one day we're just going to share it as the outtakes. But, That's um, true. I'm That's true. glad to be here. We have a great episode today. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, but before we do that, let's jump in real quick. B, how you doing? Man, listen, it's, it's hot outside, man. So I tell you, ain't nothing like going outside at 8 a.m. and sweating at 8.01. So it's just, <laughs> it's a different type of heat down here. And uh, other than that, man, I, I'm good. I'm, I'm really looking forward to to this episode. Uh, and, and you will all find out why sooner than later. But but yeah, I'm good, man. Okay. Cool. Harris, what's good in your world? It's, it's a good week. Uh, I see. I feel like I kind of got a theme now. It's a great mental health week. I've been getting plenty of sleep. Um, been able to get a lot of work done. I had a couple uh, major projects. Got that in. Nice. I'm um I'm doing I'm doing well. Like two weeks ago, I think I even talked about it on the show. I was it was bad, but um it's just been it's just been a climb since. So the sunlight helps. Okay. So um. I'm wrapping up a trip to California. Um, it's been yes. great spending time nice. with my mom. Um, yes, that's what's up. You know, which was a question mark. It's still coronavirus going on. And so we wanted to make sure that she had an opportunity to see Ella and vice versa. But we wanted to make sure that we did it in a way that was um, socially responsible, but also, um, you know, making best the best choices of, of what we had available. So we've we've been here uh, for a little over a week, almost two weeks, uh, and it's been great, you know, just spending time in the house, in the yard, gone on walks, gone on picnics, finding all the abandoned beaches in, in Southern California. It's, it's been dope. And uh, I'm so far, um, it's been a great call, and I'm glad we made it. There's an abandoned beach in California? Listen, so everybody goes to Venice Beach, right? And And... The whole, if you think about it, the whole state has a coastline. And so sometimes you can go to an out-of-the-way beach or like a little cove where there's nobody there. And we've, we've been to two different beaches where at one, there wasn't anybody for 100 yards in any direction. And in another, there was maybe one other group at the beach and they took one side and we took another side. So, I mean, nice, it's, nice. it's been really good. I'm not going to tell y'all because then they won't be abandoned but <laughs> <laughs> there, there are spots if you're not if you're willing to to go a little further down the coast um and maybe not have you know the best quality sand uh you can you can get some good time in the water so That's what's up, man. Hey, how's it been just seeing your moms man how's 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 it been you know it's great man i mean i'm from california nice. but I, I left home 25 years ago you know and so 
every time I've been here since has just been visiting. And this has been the longest time that I've been able to spend. Usually I just drop Ella off, spend two days, and then I come back in two weeks and spend another two two days. But um, I was able, since the whole world is remote right now, I was able right. to spend, you know, uh, it'll be by the end of the trip, 16 days. And, and it, it has been a gift. Nice. So, That's what's um, up. That's what's up. I mean, listeners, I mean, the Don's mom is dope. So, I mean... She's a she's a listener of the show and she's just good people. So show so shout out to the Don's mom. Good people. Yeah, yeah. Bobby, thank you for everything. Um so mm. let's wrap up that part because I'm excited. We got a new element to the podcast and we're trying the question of the week. And uh each week we're gonna have a, a member of the show pose a question to the other two that we have not had an opportunity to preview. Um, just so we can give some answers to and uh hopefully our audience will jump in as well. So who has the question this week? I have the question this week, and and, and it was no pressure uh, at all leading uh, this inaugural nice. question. My, listen, I was stressed out. So, listen, <laughs> I, I hope this is, this, this is a good question uh, for us to be able to engage with each other, but also our listeners as, as well. And I really want us to think deeply. So here we go. What small act of kindness were you shown that you will never forget? Mm, good one. What small act of kindness were you shown, whether childhood, adulthood, that you will never forget, and why? I'll, I'll jump in on that. It um, it still sits with me. Uh, so for undergrad, you know, my grades were—I wasn't like you know top of my class or anything like that. So uh, in high school, so. The opportunity for undergrad, there were a lot of schools that I wanted to make it into that I didn't. Uh, but by the time for grad school, I was making it in. And uh, one of the schools that I made it into was Yale. And I was, I was, I mean, when I got the letter, I mean, I was almost in tears, mm. you know, just just seeing how much I had grown and developed, uh, especially, you know, you know, learning how to learn and all those things. But uh, I was deciding what school I was going to go to. And uh, one day I was just on a flight and I was speaking to this woman and kind of going back and forth for a lot of different reasons. And something I said must have triggered her to say, "Um, you deserve it. And it it, it was something that I just never been told before. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm a very humble dude. I really do my best. To make sure, and you know, it's funny when we're doing the research for this episode, talking about the adultification and you know, parentalization. I'm always making sure everybody else is taken care of, and for somebody to just kind of see that immediately and see what I was doing and just say, "Hey, hold on, you deserve it." Oh, it flipped my world. Nice. So yeah, that's, that's dope. dope. Um, so Ella and I have a mantra. And our mantra is we do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Mm. And it's something that I've said to her regularly since kindergarten. Um, You know, when she's getting out the car, I say we do the right thing. She'll say because it's the right thing to do. If I forget, then she'll start it off. Um, Those days when I walked her into class, same thing by the cubbies. You know, it's just kind of like the last thing that we leave each other with. Nice. And one day her teacher overheard it and you know it's fine it wasn't a secret 
And so um, she, she just kind of spoke to me about it. And, and, you know, the next year when Ella was in first grade, her teacher came up to us in the hall and said, I was teaching my class um, just about positive affirmations and your mantra came to mind. Would you mind speaking to the nice. kindergartners and explaining your mantra? <clears throat> and it's funny mm-hmm. because sometimes when I would say the mantra, Ella would be like, Daddy, just you know, keep it down. It's just, it's just our thing. And Aww. you know, as as you guys as parents can can attest, sometimes the, the the best gesture that someone can extend to you is is an act that empowers your child. Mm-hmm. And and this gave Ella an opportunity to take pride in in one of our little traditions. And I'm really anti tradition generally. Um but it gave her an opportunity to explain it, to take pride in it, and to just kind of take a moment with it. And it it stuck with me because the teacher didn't have to do that. The teacher could have talked about it on her own. But I think she saw it as an opportunity for the kindergartners and for Ella um, and maybe even for our family. So it was it was a, a really, really good gift all the way around. And, and I remain thankful for it. That's what's up. That's what's up. Do I have a chance to answer the question? Absolutely. Well, I ain't know, man. Shoot, I'm starting. I thought y'all was going to be like, no, we good. Next. <laughs> but your answer needs yeah, to be the best since you've known the question. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> oh, man, that's so funny. Um, so the first thing that came to mind, I was living in Chicago, and I would play basketball on Lakeshore Drive like during the summer every Saturday. And uh, at the end of every game, there was always the, these two little kids that would ask to get on the court to just shoot around. And us as adults really didn't give them any attention. And, uh, you know, I would often give them the ball and, and shoot around with them and just talk to them and just hang out with them. And then when it was time for us to re-up the game, you know, I wouldn't, you know, they would go and, and just sit back on the side and just chill out. And fast forward 13 or so years later, I was at a bar downtown Chicago just hanging out and uh, there were no seats. And so I happened to find like one seat. So I went over there and I got it, put it at the table, sat down. And this dude that was by that seat kept looking at me. And I was just like, dude, why are you looking at me? Like, what's going down? And so then he comes over and he was like, you don't remember me, do you? So my first thought was like, man, not today, man. I am not trying to, I am not trying to knuckle up today. He was like, you don't remember me, do you? And I was like, nah. And he was just like, you remember that kid that would be at the basketball courts just hanging out, trying to play. And you would encourage him to just shoot around and you would talk to him about life and school. I was like, yeah. He was like, that was me. And he said, I had never met a black elementary school teacher. And I just wanted to let you know that I'm getting my master's degree in education because of you. And like the the way that that, like shook me and like the divine presence of God saying, I'm going to put you in this space at this time for this reason, just further affirmed that as an educator and as a teacher, we think of it being just disseminating information to kids, but we are often reminded that what we do change lives. So just the act of kindness of just seeing him, hanging out with him, but then you know, this, the same kid having, um, 
you know, the courage to come and just share that with me, just, just it meant, it meant a lot. And I use that to fuel like my teaching after that fact. So, so yeah, man, just, just, you know, that was huge for me. So Brian, as a follow-up, did he also mention that when you elbowed him in the face when he was seven, it ruined his basketball career? Listen, man, I just got to tell y'all, y'all are painting me out to be a bully. <laughs> I swear, from Brian be lifting weights and, and he eats iron for breakfast. I'm a nice guy, man. I mean, yeah, okay. I elbow, see you on the court like Carl Malone, bro. <laughs> uh, no, there's there's other big men that I could be instead of Carl Malone. Carl Malone has a history. <laughs> <laughs> man, you were prepared to knuckle up with a man that I'm sure was wearing a dress shirt. He's like, I hey, mean, man, do you recognize me? You broke a bottle over the side of the bar. And <laughs> <laughs> was like, no, I don't. No, nah, fool, no, what I you want? He's like, man, no. Nah. Listen, uh, it, it, it was just it was just amazing to be able to just, you know, kind of have that replay in your head instantly, uh, but then be brought back to, you know, calm down, man. You ain't got to fight every time. In fact, I've never been in a fight. That's all I got to say. Leave it at that. No, that's incredible, man. I mean... So seldom do we have an opportunity to see some of the seeds that we planted take root. And and so that was a gift. I mean, both you having that impact on him, but also him being able to share that with you. So that's what's up, man. True, true, true. And you know, we're friends on Facebook and on LinkedIn, and I'm definitely going to send him this episode just to pay it forward. Yeah, man. That's dope. Okay. So without further ado, let's jump into the episode. Um, today we're talking about the adultification of black children and, um, we have a special guest, but, um, I, I would much rather Brian do the introduction (laughs) because I think he's very well equipped to do so. So take it away, B. Hey, listen, I am not going to, to mess this up. Um, as I know, right. So as D-Don said, we have a guest today and this guest is very near and dear and special to my heart. She is the love of my life. She is the best mother to our child, and she is going to be the best mother to our newborn um, girl coming in December. Um, Her experience has not only helped me um, socially and emotionally, um, but her commitment to children and children of color has been something I've been inspired by since the day that I first met her. I love this woman because she is my wife, and I am so happy that Faiza is joining us on the podcast today. Faiza, thank you so much. We are so excited to have you. Hey. Hey, guys. (laughs) I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Welcome. Welcome. Yeah. So um, you got the chance to witness our foolishness. Um, (laughs) Yes. Are are you ready? (laughs) I'm I'm married to Brian. I'm, oh, we're know. good. <laughs> no, we're good. I love this show. I love what? the show. I listen to every episode. I told you guys I had to mute myself in the beginning because I knew I'd be laughing and interrupting the conversation. <laughs> well, awesome, awesome. Um, one of the ways that we jump in with each of our guests is we ask them, what is your six-word memoir? So, Pfizer, without any further ado... Drop your six-word memoir on us. Listen, I knew this was the starting question. I've been thinking about this for like two weeks. Um, but I I will share my six-word memoir, but I also want to say I really appreciate the question because I think it forces you to think about what's important in your life, and I learn a lot from your guests as you guys have been asking this question. 
Um, and so what I would say is I protect safe spaces for healing. And, you know, that really just is rooted in my background as a social worker, as a mental health clinician, and thinking about all of us, we're, we're on our own journeys and we need to have spaces where people fully see us and give us the space that we need to develop into the person that we're meant to be. I love that you said protect mm-hmm. as opposed to create. Like that just to me shows a level of awareness that a lot a lot of people don't have. You know, I appreciate that because I went back and forth trying to find the right word. And what really stands out to me, and, and this is just, I think, part of my core beliefs as a therapist, is we don't create the healing for people. Mm. We give the opportunity and we share space and hold. Um, I think difficult emotions sometimes for and with them, but the creation of that process starts with the person that says, I need, I need something different, or I need a space, um, to figure out what's been happening with me, right? They create that opening in their lives and then it's our job to meet them where they are and move forward with them. You know, we have a variety of questions that uh, live in the space of understanding adultification of, of our Black children. And I would like to center the, the, the why of, of why we thought that you would be a great addition to our show, um, you know, for, for this topic, because you're not an African-American mom. Um, and as I said Many times, um, you know, my wife is is Indian and, and she's Muslim, but I would love for you just to share a little bit about your background to help the listeners understand the perspective that you're bringing, the love that you're bringing, and the understanding and commitment that you're bringing to being able to speak on, on such an important topic. Sure. You know, I, well, we talked about this a lot too, as we talked about this episode, um, and I think it is an important topic and I'm humbled uh, just to be asked to be here with you all as we have a conversation about it. The thing I think that's important to acknowledge that I want to frame with is I'm coming, you know, I'm going to offer information from my perspective from um, not only my clinical training and background, but then also the work that I've done over the years to understand race and internal bias and systemic racism, as well as then how that has changed as Brian and I got married, as we have a black son, um, we're expecting our daughter. So there's, I think, different lenses um, that this has taken for me over the years. Um, And I've spent a lot of time as an educator, I was a teacher, and then as a social worker, working in schools that primarily serve black and brown students. And the other, that's the other reason why I think this topic is really important. I'm not going to say that I am an expert or that I am able to express my um, information on this topic in a better way than somebody that has lived it or than a, a black mom or a black woman. I'm going to say that I think it's important for people who do work with black and brown children 
to understand this and to have a perspective where they're willing to take risks and be vulnerable and increase their own learning and understanding of it. Um, And as I think about over the years, the work that I've done, I think that's a journey that I've been on and that I'm continuing on, especially now as a mother. So I guess this kind of leads me to my, my next question. And we talk about this all the time. We actually first started talking about this when we were dating. But how has marrying a Black man changed your perspective on the world? That's, you know, that is, there are so many things that I can say about that. And yes, we have talked about it a lot. Um, I think, you know, if you live in America, you live in a society that in every way, consciously and unconsciously is shaped by race. I, I would argue that probably for most places in the world, but because this is our experience, it's the one that I know and that I can speak to. So was I aware of discrimination and systemic issues? Yes. Have I experienced discrimination in certain ways because of my background? Yes. And was I fully aware of it in the way that I think I am becoming and that I witness as being your partner? Um, Absolutely not. And I I don't think there is a way that I could have been. Um, Even with, I think, a lot of the work that I was doing um, and and the clinical work that I was doing, the uh, populations of supporting, you know, all of those things, like you, you can see structural racism built in, in many ways. But now a conversation that Brian and I have talked about is there are certain times where I just, I witness it because I'm there with him as it happens. Um, and that's a totally different experience. So, you know, one kind of snapshot of that that comes to mind is we had gone on a trip Early when we were dating, we went to a trip uh, to Charleston. And this was a really interesting experience for us. Charleston is uh, the South, right? And it's uh, a place, it's beautiful, and we had a great time, and we really enjoyed the trip. Um, And also, it's a place where the presence, the history of slavery is so, it's almost a physical presence that you feel in parts of the city. Um, and, you know, it's it's very white. And so here we are, an Indian woman and a black man walking around the streets of Charleston, having a good time. And there was one instance, there was a lot of instances, actually, where people kind of just stared at us. There was one moment where the sidewalk was really narrow and Brian was walking in front of me and I was walking behind him. And I just watched. I, and it was the first time I really physically saw people move away from him or, you know, women across the street, like just witnessing the response um, as I walked behind him. That really changed, I think, a lot of the ways in which I I had a new lens um, as we navigate situations together where I'm a lot more aware of some subtleties that are displayed that, to be honest, I think in my own privilege, I was ignorant to before. Wow. There's um 
there's this notion that we, I, I know I bring up all the time here uh, about raising free children. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like freedom is, is, is a mindset in a lot of circumstances. So I was wondering, like, how would you say your clinical background has impacted um, how you try to raise Nas to be free, to have free thought, free expression, not to feel like he's stuck in a box? I think I will say sometimes I think clinically like having that kind of background is a gift and a curse. Um, in a lot of ways, I think, you know, I, I understand childhood development, like that's my training. And so what I, and I think this will relate actually, as we continue talking, as we think about maintaining the innocence of children, um, what I really want is for Nas to fully experience the joys of childhood Um, and just to feel that he can play and he can interact um, in the same way as every other child. And the reason I say that, you know, there's a curse in it is because I also think clinically I understand that as much as we try, there are things that we cannot that we can't protect him from. And also I would say that realistically, I don't think that we would want to, like we need him to understand the reality of our world and be equipped and ready for it. Yeah, there's that tension. It, yes, absolutely. Um, and it's understanding the trauma of that and um, what childhood trauma can look like and how it affects and racialized trauma is a real thing. And so I think it's also always in the back of my mind of how do we help him be joyful and free and maintain like he's such a sweet hearted kid and I want him to maintain that innocence and love um while also understanding what's happening in our world and and understanding situations where he may need to be a little more guarded in order to make sure that he is safe I'm sure it's rough to witness, you know, especially, you know, the the times when you just kind of want to jump in and protect them, but you guys are just like, no. <laughs> yeah, which I think for, for all parents, right, there's always these moments that, I mean, there are our babies, no matter how old. I mean, I still have a, a baby, I guess he's two, but you guys are having your girls starting to grow up and there are th- times where you can't protect them as much as you want to, but you can be there for them when they need you afterward or when they need to understand what happened and they need to heal from it. No, absolutely. Um, I'm really excited to have this conversation because just like as you mentioned, I have a nine-year-old and one day she's playing with dolls and later on she's asking for a bikini, you know, or she puts on a dress and she's trying to pull the sleeve off her shoulder. And these are literal battles that I'm having. And, and then the next day she'll ask for a Hello Kitty. You know, so it's 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 a challenge. Um, but just to make sure that we're all on the same page, you know, when we talk about the adultification of, of a child, what does that mean? Yes. So adultification, well, so I'm going to say in the context of the conversation we're having, and I think in the context of, America, adultification, we are referring specifically to black children and talking about basically the 
um, generic response of society to perceive black children as being older than they are and to treat them that way. Um, and I think across the genders, this sometimes manifests differently, but it exists for both. Um, I think more commonly when we think about this for black boys, we think about it in a way that involves, um, higher risk for the criminal justice system, higher risk to their safety. Um, thinking about, you know, like a 12 year old playing in the park, right. With a toy gun and how that resulted in loss of life. Murder. Absolutely. And when we talk about it with black girls, I think what's interesting is that there has been less research over time. Um, but in, in 2017, actually Georgetown did a huge study specifically looking at black girls. And I just think the data is worth talking about like a quick summary of it is compared to white girls of the same age, survey participants basically perceived black girls to be older. And as a result of that, responded in ways in which they felt that they needed less nurturing, less protection, Mm -hmm. less comfort. They could be more independent. They knew more about sex. So there's this hypersexualization that happens from a very young age. And so when we're talking about adultification, I think it's, it comes down to society expecting black children to act in a way that is incongruent with their developmental stage. And often this is happening at detriment to the kids. Right. I, um, I was reading an article and they used the term, um, it's dehumanizing mm-hmm. because to, to be a child, to make mistakes is a human trait. So when you, when you take that away from a child, it's dehumanizing. And I don't know, that term just shook me because I was, you know, it, if you're not human, what are you? Yeah. Yep. I, it reminds me often, well, there's two things actually that come up for me as we talk about it. As when I think about concrete examples, the first thing that, I think it's really significant and is worth being mentioned. Like I've worked in education since the beginning of my career um, as a teacher, as a high school social worker, and nobody ever named this for me. It's something that I think I noticed in the way people would respond to my kids. It's something that also we have to remember how smart kids are, that they were aware of and they understood happened. Um, and so we would have conversations about, and so then I kind of went out looking, what, what is this that I'm seeing? What do we know about it? What do I need to know in order to support my students? Um, and in order to be an advocate, um, coming from a place where I'm fully aware of what's happening for them. And That to me is such an injustice that we are sending people into our schools to work with our young people that are bringing in this bias and are not aware of it. And it's, I mean, the implications of it are clear, right? We we know about the school to prison pipeline. We understand the criminalization that happens when, you know, a child in a school 
has the cops called on them for something that I would say from experience would never happen to a child that is white. Um, and so I think, you know, I just, I say that to say, you know, I, I had, a, I've had a lot of conversations with teachers. Part of my role as a school social worker is supporting teachers where they by default would say, but they should know better. They shouldn't have done this because they know better. And my response over time became, why? Why do you expect them to know better? Exactly. exactly. This, is a, this is a child. Like we, we all make mistakes. Adults make them too. But have you taught them? Have you explicitly sat down and had this conversation and talked about what it means and helped them understand your expectation or, you know, what was going on and process the situation with them? Or because you expect them to know, are you responding in a way where the consequence is more harsh because they're not meeting the expectation you have of them? The reason why I struggle with this topic is because I'm all for having this open conversation with teachers and making sure that, or at least advocating that my daughter and other daughters are being treated and, and, and the boys as well. Cause whatever you do to one gender in a, in a community, you do to the other. Um, but I also have to be honest. There is a huge part that, that our families play in, in this very same phenomena. You know, I can remember it doesn't happen as much to, to my knowledge, but I can remember girls who were way too young to babysit, babysitting younger siblings, you know, and me growing up, I had a key to my house at at nine years old because I was expected to come home and to let myself in and to start my homework. And I, I get that, that those are often situations that are created out of necessity, but I wonder what role our families play in this giving of our children too much responsibility too soon and kind of taking away aspects of their childhood. Yeah, I think, you know what? I think that's a great point. Um, I think we also though have to consider context need and uh, I'm trying to think of the right word, like resilience almost. So what I would say is I think there's a difference between giving a child a responsibility, like you were talking about, I was nine, I had a key to my house, this was what I was expected to do. Um, in certain ways, my guess would be that that built responsibility and resilience in you. I'm not saying that that's what we want, right, every nine-year-old to experience, but it seems like And you can tell me more about it, but you and your mom had an agreement and a system and there are ways that you could still maintain your safety or some kind of check in place. Like if you needed something, you knew maybe you knew what to do is is what I'm saying. Right. A whole thing. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And that's so that's the difference, I think. Right. There are situations, I think, just through life that we are going to be forced to give children some responsibilities. I think a really common example of that is if you're an older sibling, you often have a lot more responsibility in a family because, because you came first. Right. Um, I think where it becomes harmful is when it is a, a label given to you without the protection or the safety. 
or without the, um, like if you're an older sibling and you're given responsibility, you're doing that in the context of your family. You're still not, I'm, I'm talking about a very certain situation where like you're not raising your younger brother, but you're helping your parents in certain ways and they have asked you to do that and to take on that responsibility. When I think about the other example I was thinking about as we're talking about just um, how this can be harmful is the situation, I, I, th- I can't remember the kid's name and I have to be honest, I, I think I'm glad that I don't remember his name, but the white swimmer, I think at Stanford Brock, that, Brock. yep, that raped a woman right. and reading articles about it. And this is a grown man in college that was said, boys, like boys will be boys. He was just acting out. It was just right. So this sense that society affords certain people the ability and says, well, it was just a mistake because it was a transgression because he was young versus, you know, um, the student in Michigan right now who is locked up because she didn't do her homework. Right. And, and when you read the background of that case too, like it, it infuriated me even more because the judge was saying, well, she's not locked up for not doing her homework. Here's what happened and gives this history that doesn't justify or help this decision-making in my mind. Right. But again, I think it goes back to how do we as a society afford children the opportunity to make mistakes? And we, we do that differently and we allow it to a much um, older age for certain kids than we do for others. Absolutely. You know, one thing I, I struggle with is projecting my lived experiences on Nas. And I know that we've joked about this before in the past, But I remember in our earlier episodes, I talked about being in kindergarten and having a desk like my teachers, right? And putting the toys that I brought to school in my my drawers. And we often laugh about this, but it forces me to think about how adultification happened to me at such a young age, but I wasn't privy to identifying it as that term. Mm -hmm. And 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 I look at Nas and I think about how sweet he is, but... I mean, Nas has been the tallest boy in his peer grouping from from birth, right? right? And most folks often comment on him being an athlete or being a football player or he's big like his dad. And so there is this sense of pride, right? But then there's also this sense of, of fear and trepidation and knowing, am I setting him up? And so one of the things that you said earlier, Faiza, was you talked about racial bias. And I would love for you just to speak on, you know, how have you observed racial bias as it relates to how people view Nas? This is so interesting for me. And I'm going to specifically say talking about this also as an Indian woman, um, because I think one of the things that I know and understand is, especially as Nas gets older in America, he's black and he's, he's Indian to me, right? He's my child. Um, but we, 
have a culture that says this is who he is and and this is how he will be treated. Um, and I'm I'm very aware of that. Brian and I have talked about that a lot in order to kind of understand what that means. And so when I think about just observing racial bias, I think for me, uh, there's a couple of examples that come to mind. One would be, honestly, in general, Indian kids, like I'll say a lot of like my friends' kids and things that we talk about is they are the smallest ones in their class, which is interesting to me. So I get a lot of comments about how big Nas is. Um, and sometimes, and I don't, it's, it's one of those things that I think is a really hard gray area when it comes to race, but there are times in which depending on who the comment is coming from, it feels like a microaggression, like a commentary that they're making to me and kind of naming that my son is not fully Indian, if that makes sense. Um, but then the other, I think like most stark example that comes to my mind is I told Brian about this as soon as it happened. Like I, I took Nas one day to, you know, there's like all those indoor play spaces for kids and they can run around and it's all soft mats and tumble and have a great time. And I took Nas and he did, he had a, he had a great time. Um, and we went with, you know, I'm, I've been part of this mom's group since he was born. And so we get our kids together. We do a lot. Um, and so I went with a bunch of them and all of the kids are kind of within three months of each other in age. And we, we sat down and all of the kids are there and I'm looking and all the other kids are white and Nas is, he's just bigger than them. And I don't know that any, I mean, there's always comments Brian's write about like, oh, he's so tall. I can't believe how big he is. Or, you know, he's two. And often people tell us he looks like he's three. And I, I get very protective when those comments are made. I like remind people like, but he's two, like, you know, cause I want them to, I want them to view his behavior and his actions as that as what they would expect from a two-year-old. He's going to be impulsive. He's, he doesn't know how to share yet. Like we're working on these things because developmentally that's where he's at. Um, and I, I, I don't know that I can name explicitly anything that happened in that space. Um, but what I f- felt was uncomfortable the whole time. And I felt very protective and that I had to stay near him and I had to make sure that he was having fun and that other people, and I'm not talking specifically about our friends. I'm talking about the space in general, which was mostly a lot of white kids that other people didn't perceive that he was a threat or that he was in some way going to hurt their kids. And, and that sat with me for a long time that I just felt like I had to be more alert and protective and aware. Um, then quite frankly, I think I saw most of the parents being right as the kids just run around and, and have a good time in a safe place. And they kind of use that as an opportunity to relax and talk to each other. As we think about the school year, right? A lot of schools are going to be going back virtually, but in a year or so, um, you know, we do want to transition our kids back into the physical space of, of being back in school. Uh, what advice would you give to parents listening about adultification, especially as it relates to their child 
And what resources or recommendations or action steps would you would you provide to parents to to be able to to confront this and address it so that it doesn't become an issue? I think there's there's a lot here. I want to go back actually. I think um Dinan, you were talking about like ways in which you see Ella kind of what? How old are you? Like, you know, the the Hello Kitty versus the the outfit, right? Um I also want to speak a little bit to, I think, our kids now. Maybe this makes me sound old, but I'm like, they've got it. It seems so much harder to be a kid now than when we were kids. Just with with social media, with um, the access to the messaging that kids have. Um, And so I think, I mean, and that's one of my things that I would say to parents is always being aware of what your child is consuming. Um, and the messages that are out there, because even things that can seem innocent, our kids are interpreting and internalizing. And if we're not having conversations with them about it, um, then they're coming to their own conclusions, right? And they're creating their own beliefs. And so um, I think that's one thing for a parent. Like I used to always, and I still say to parents that you should know what's going on on your kid's cell phone, in their social media. And I'm not saying this as you don't trust your child. I'm saying that your child's prefrontal cortex hasn't fully developed. Um, and they're working on figuring out who they are and they have access to all of these devices that instantly allow them to access an adult world. And if we're not going to help them navigate that, um, then that can be scary and unsafe. Hey guys, and I then step off oh. really quick. I'm sorry, babe. Uh, not taking <laughs> off his pajamas uh, in his crib. so I'll be right. Yeah, please back. go help him out. Okay, yes. thank you. <laughs> All right, we'll use this is this his new right. thing. Even need be anyway. I appreciate you you bringing up that point because that's something that I'm really struggling with right now, and for other parents who. You know, there's a lot of unrest going on right now, and hopefully something good will end up coming from it. But Ella and I are having a lot of conversations. And, you know, I struggle because I want to have an aware child, but I'm also, or at least I feel like every bit of information that I share with her that is about what's going on right now chips a little bit away at her childhood, and, and and I want her to be able to, you know, laugh and play. But the reality is she lives in D.C. and she has opinions on the, the resident in 1600, you know. And so how do you how do you toe that line in terms of what to share or what to just kind of taper back on? Or if there's a, you know, if there's a question I could ask myself or any tool, because this is something that is a constant struggle for me. And her mom and I. We have very different approaches. Um, both of them have the same goal in mind to just to kind of make sure that she is equipped, but it's a struggle that we share. I think this is, gosh, the struggle that we we all share as parents, right? Um, and I'm glad that we're talking about it. Part of it for me is um, norming and checking in with others sometimes around like, how are you talking to your kids? These are the ways that we're thinking about this with Naz. Part of it is that, right? Like having that community, just like you guys do on the, it's actually one of the reasons why I love this podcast. I think it gives that space for people to 
process and then hear how are other people handling this difficult situation. The other thing though, that I would tell people, I mean, from what I've heard, as you talk about Ella, she's intelligent and she's aware and kids appreciate honesty. And so I think when you come from a genuine place and having a conversation with her and and developmentally appropriate, right? You don't want to overload her. Um, But to say, you know, yes, there are things happening around us. You know, what have you heard? I think that it's important sometimes just to ask kids because they're hearing about it in different spaces, Um, whether it's they saw some a snippet on the news, whether something popped up on YouTube or a peer said something to them. They're getting the information. So I think for parents, it's important to kind of understand what do you know? And then you can use that to guide them with how you want them to understand the information, how it can be empowering to them, you know, what, how you support them through understanding what's happening around us, what your hopes are from what comes from the movements happening. Um, And it creates a safe space for them to say, oh, if I have a question, I can go to my dad or my mom. And they're going to be honest and help me understand some of these things, as opposed to let me go and ask my friend, you know, Susie, and get her (laughs) interpretation as a fellow nine or 10 year old about what's happening. Um, So that's part of what I would say. And then the other piece of it, I think, goes back to exactly what you were talking about, which is be willing to engage in those conversations, but those aren't defining her childhood, right? And so then you're also maintaining the space where she can just be a kid and play and, you know, take out Hello Kitty or, you know, still engage in imaginative play if that's her thing, go outside and be on her scooter, but just disconnecting then from the heaviness of that conversation and having spaces where she's just a kid again. I I have to share a story with you. Um, really quick, Harris. I'm sorry. So she introduces <laughs> me to her friend and her friend's twin brother, and then her friend's mother and her friend's other mother. And then she says, Daddy, I know what you're thinking. And so me and the two moms look at each other and I'm like, oh God, what's this kid going to say? And she said, they're fraternal twins. And I was, <laughs> So I, I think that you raise a point to let the kids lead because we never really know where they're coming from if we don't let them get what's on their chest off. And I was like, oh yeah, okay, fraternal twins. Tell me all about what that means. And she goes on to explain what clearly she learned like 30 seconds prior, right, right, what fraternal right. twins are. So, I mean, you, you, you I love a really it. good point to let the kids lead and to find out what, you know, what's on their mind before we just start filling in holes with our adult understanding. And the only other thing I would add to that too is, and I, man, I think this is hard for all of us on certain days with our kids, but not to be embarrassed when they say something, right? Like kids, especially younger kids, when you think about like that age group, like three to five, they're going to point out differences. And so they see different skin color and they might talk about it. And if we're embarrassed, then we're playing into, we're creating, um, Perpetuating is actually what I want to say. We're perpetuating the idea that race is negative. 
that this is a bad thing, that we don't talk about it. That if you, you know, see race, that's a bad thing. Where we all know that actually like claiming to be colorblind is more harmful than anything else. And we should see and fully recognize people for who they are. And so when your child makes one of those comments, it's meeting them where they are. And then I would say trying to move that into a positive place, right? So, oh yes, that person's skin is this color. Isn't it beautiful? Or, you know, how does that compare to your own skin? And let's talk about that. And, you know, but this is all just a part of who we are. Um, And it's important to recognize and love and see people for who they are. Um, And so I think that's, that's another thing too, right? Because we all kind of think about, oh no, what's my child about to say? But we don't have to be embarrassed about it. We can use it um, to empower, to build acceptance and to have conversations with them. I'm back. This kid. Is he clothed? <laughs> he and he, he diapered himself and uh, oh. himself at the same time. So, oh, I'm sh- yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for taking care of that. <laughs> Dad jeans one on one. Multitasking. Yes. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, I was. It's funny. You. There's so much that's layered in, in the question that you just answered. And I, I'm telling you, it was everything in me not to be like, Hey, but what about this? <laughs> so, one thought that I want to make sure I cap that I didn't lose was, um, the talk and how, you know, the talk in and of itself is an adultification moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you, so, so there's that. And it's, it's really funny how the talk is just such a, a automatic part of of black culture, so it seems. Um, Harris, take, so, a, so take a moment that. just to talk about what the what you mean by the talk. Okay, um, so in the in the black community, I'm sure they have it in different communities as well. But the talk is this moment where you sit your child down and you tell them that the way the world works uh, may be different for you. So. Um, the example that I was going to use, uh, you were saying like you have the two children who, you know, one child may say something to another child, right? Now, if that child is is white, that child may able to may be able to say that, but then my child says it, and then it's a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or the white child may be able to do something, but then when my child does that or go a certain place, when my child goes there, then there's a problem. And it's a problem because they're the ones who are treated, you know, they're treated like adults where everyone else gets treated like a child. And sometimes they're just not even treated like an adult. They're just murdered. They're Mm -hmm. dehumanized, you know. So that's on the underlying concept of the talk. Uh, And, you know, one one other thought popped to my mind, uh, the role of media, you know, especially for black girls, you know, there's these three, uh, potent media images of black women. You have like the Mammy, the mm-hmm. Jezebel, and the Sapphire. So you have the Mammy who is, you know, everybody's mother, the asexual one. You have the Jezebel who uses her her sexual prowess to get what she wants and and you know she she ruins lives. And then you have the Sapphire who's the girl with all this attitude with the, you know, um, and all of those images, if people see these young girls in these lights and don't allow them to be children, 
Um, there's this whole media piece that is just, again, spewing these lies. And a lot of people play into it. So mm-hmm. anyway, all of what you said inspired all those jumbles of thoughts. Um, and I had to get it out. My question what? is... <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, my background's West African and, and Panamanian. Um, a big part of our culture is your responsibility to the family. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would definitely qualify that <laughs> as adultification. So, uh, and then also we use... Uh, we pride ourselves on using Montessori techniques uh, for raising our children, which, Mm -hmm. again, if you can do it yourself, you should do it yourself. Uh, What upsides do you see, um, as uh, if any, as a part of adultification? Uh, And also, uh, what role do you think your cultural background plays on that as well. Does that does that impact uh, whether or not it's good or bad, or you know, is it just a thing about how it plays? Just what is your perspective on the cultural aspect, and then also on the positive aspects? Absolutely. So, I mean, first of all, I'll say I definitely relate, Harris. Right? I mean, in Indian culture, I think that's a shared belief as well. Like you are part of your family. Um, and so you have a responsibility to your family and you think about that as a, you're a collective. Um, yes, yes. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, Brian and I've had conversations about that too, where sometimes I, you know, like we're talking and, and I think this is part of being in an interracial and interfaith relationship is sometimes I have to say to him, well, like, you know, this is, how my family does things because we're Indian. And sometimes he's like, I get it, but I'm black. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Right. So it's like kind of just navigating who we are and what that means. We do. We do. Listen, or, or vice versa, right. Where he's trying to explain something to me. And I'm like, I understand that you think this is something that everybody knows, but like I'm Indian. That didn't happen in my house growing up. I don't, I don't have a context for it. Right. Um, and I say all that to say that in Indian culture, the firstborn, and especially if it's the firstborn son, has a lot of responsibility and is expected to, you know, kind of take on that role in the family. And that's, that is a cultural norm. Um, and I even think of it too. I remember like as a kid, there were things that like, as my sister got older, she would be asked to do by extended family. And I was always like, well, I could, I could do that. Like, why do people only think she's the one that can do that? Right. But it was, it was cultural. It was about like, she's an older, more responsible one. This is her role in the family and she should be doing this. Um, so that's also why when we started this conversation, I said, you know, when we talk about adultification, I'm talking about it in the context of a very American cultural understanding of it, which is specifically the ways in which it happens to black children and the ways in which that is harmful. Because in that context, what we're doing is we're taking away their opportunity and their chance to be children. And we're treating them as if they are adults. And we're doing it in ways that are having harmful outcomes over time. Um, And I think that 
comes out in exactly what you were talking about, Harris, where, right, like in having to have the talk with Black children to protect them because they are not afforded that innocence as children. With the hypersexualization, you know, that um, comes along, I think, often with certain situations and understandings of what it means to be a Black girl that does not happen in the same way for other races. And so when I think of it culturally, I think that that is, that looks different depending on your culture. You know, I can't speak to, um, I can't speak to other experiences outside of my own, but I think that, yes, there's adultification that happens in Indian culture. I think there are ways in which um, that can be harmful with the level of responsibility that can be put onto the oldest child or the idea that they have to carry things forward for the family that, you know, they have to do everything right. (laughs) Um, because everybody's depending on them to do it. And, you know, I, so you said that you were talking about Montessori. My mom is a Montessori educator. I love Montessori. Um, Brian knows, like we're going to send Nas to Montessori preschool. Um, this is what I was told me first. I was like, okay. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I want to be very clear in saying that adultification and the way that we're talking about it as harmful is not the same as building responsibility and independence in kids. And developmentally, there are tasks that kids want to do on their own, that they should be trusted to do, that helps make them feel that they are, you know, they're confident and they're capable. And so I think in a lot of ways, that's where the Montessori philosophy is rooted in. Like if the, if your two-year-old can put on his shoes himself, but it takes you 10 minutes longer to get out the door in the morning you still should let them do it because you're building their sense of being capable and confident and independent. And honestly, when we just rush to put on the shoes, it's serving our own purpose because we're all going to be late now. Right. Um, And so I think that's the difference I want to draw where it is important for kids to have some responsibility. That's a great distinction. Thank you so much. Yes. I think the reason why I even, leaned in that direction is just the thought. Sometimes people hear we um we love our sons and we raise our daughters. And um I was wondering, you know, does it play into that notion of, okay, she needs to be responsible and, you know, wash the dishes, yada, yada, all this kind of stuff. And uh meanwhile, you know, the boys are just kind of chilling. Again, not across the board, but I think there's a lot of these different elements that just play into a toxic culture. Um, you know, that word is so overused now, but I mean, it's, it's a tangled ball. It is. And I think part of what you're talking about, which is a whole nother conversation, but I think goes into gender roles and toxic masculinity and how we view, you know, I mean, that's, we could have a whole nother episode, I but. Was just, I was just going <laughs> to say that, right? That's an episode in itself. Um, I am over the moon just grateful and thankful, babe, that you were able to be a part of this today and just drop some jewels and some gems and bring listeners deeper into 
just the world of the Don Harris and Brian, but also into the world of Pfizer, Brian and Nas um, and, and, and the baby girl. Um, I thank you so much for speaking truth to power. I also thank you so much for leaning into drawing from your own personal experience, um, your professional experience. And, um, you know, I, I, I think I speak for every, everybody on the pod that this, this was a great episode. Thank you so much. Thank you guys for having me. I honestly, I was honored to be here. Um, enjoyed the conversation and I'll be, I'll be tuning in to all your, all your episodes. I'm a loyal fan. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. And, um, you know, I've told Brian time and time again, it makes me uncomfortable when he calls me babe. So I'm glad that we had a guest. <laughs> <laughs> it all you got worked jokes, out. Jokes <laughs> So, yes, thank you, thank you. Pfizer, what's giving you inspiration these days? Oh gosh, um, I, you know, well, you guys have talked about it on the pod, so you know we're we're expecting a baby girl in December. Yeah, <laughs> and I think that is. My inspiration, you know, I look at Nas, I think about our newest edition, and I think our world has to be a better place for our kids. And so whatever we can do on a daily basis um, to move us in that direction and to create and to hold on to that hope, that's, that's what gives me inspiration. So Harris, how about you? I ain't gonna get into it too deep, but um, I've been doing a lot of uh, reading on um, on like black mythology and spiritual, not black, uh, African mythology and spirituality. So, you know, the culture of Orishas and and all of that. And it's just been, um, there's just something about learning your mythology and your your these these entities, and it not being you know, I got to read somewhere that, oh, this person was actually black. Like, no, these, when, when they were imagined, uh, they were imagined as, as black people. And it was, and it's being taught to me and my children that way. Um, so there's just a lot that can be learned from, you know, knowing these stories, these fables, these myths, and um, sharing them with my kids and, and them, you know, viewing themselves as divine creatures. Uh, and, you know, it's just, I, I think, it just feels really good. And uh, so we've just been enjoying that as a family. Brian, what's giving you inspiration? As Pfizer and I gear up and prepare for baby girl, uh, we're trying to plan a day for us just to go out and um, just talk about the baby name. And I'm really looking forward to that. Um, and also, uh, this weekend, we're about to go to a drive through zoo. And I'm I'm looking forward to to that. So it's in Maryland, uh, right, babe? Or is it in Virginia? It's Virginia. Yeah. And so we we're just gonna get in our car, um, raise the window down, and just you know drive and like have llamas and camels come up to the car, and Nas will be able to to feed the animals. And so 
Um, looking forward to that. I don't know how I'm going to react when I see a llama put his head in the car. I might speed off with the head in the car um, um, because I'm from the hood. And so um, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to that. Just trying to break up this monotony of COVID. Like we thought back in March that this would be over by now, uh, but for the foreseeable future, um, you know, we're going to be looking at activities like this. Um, so I'm definitely looking forward to these two events coming up real soon. So, D, what about you, man? What's 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 giving you inspiration, bro? So a couple months ago, Ella brings me my computer with an application for America's Got Talent pulled up for her, not for me. To be honest, my kid does have some raw talent. But she doesn't understand the correlation between hard work and cultivating a talent. And so, you know, fast forward, which is why she thinks that, you know, she's ready to go on America's Got Talent. And so for this trip, I brought my bike and I set a goal to ride 500 miles while I was in California. And I did it for myself. I didn't do it with any like teaching tool in mind. But what I realized is that it gives her an opportunity to see this is the goal that I set. This is the work that I do. This is what time I have to wake up. And this is like, this is what a flat tire looks like, but I still have to work tomorrow. And I think that if my kid doesn't see the correlation between talent and hard work, then it's my responsibility to show her. And um, the benefit is that I turned 44 while I was here. Uh, black men statistically live to be 67. And if I'm 44, then literally two-thirds of my life statistically has passed. And I want to make sure that I am doing every single thing that I can to beat those odds. And so this goal setting has also kind of given me the impetus and the inspiration to start setting other goals that will help me be healthier. So hopefully that I can spend uh, more than just 67 years here on earth. So that's that. Um, And I'm at 476 miles. Um, So tomorrow I'm knocking out these last 24 and I will have 500 for the trip. So Faiza, thank you again for for trusting us to be able to come on on a guest. And to be very clear, Faiza is our first woman guest and it was very important that we did it right. And and we wanted to make sure that um, we chose a guest that not only brought a, a knowledge and appreciated what we're doing, but that also reflected the goals of the podcast. And I think we absolutely did that. And Pfizer, thank you. And we hope that you will join us again. Thank you. Thank you guys for trusting me and for having me. Um, I enjoyed it. And, you know, really it was, it was all of you putting your trust in me because y'all are, y'all are experts at this. Um, And I'm glad to be here and learn, learn from you all. (laughs) Pfizer, for anybody who is looking to get in contact with you, is there a way that they should do it? Or is it something that we can put in the show notes? Um, sure, actually. So I do, in addition to um, my full-time work as a social worker um, for the school system, I also have a private practice. And so I do see clients. Um, I'd love to hear from people if they want to reach out and have questions. And my email address is 
F Jackson at L U M counseling.org. So I would, you know, just be happy to talk to anybody that might have some questions regarding development or, um, anything that their children may be experiencing and maybe they just want some input or, or some guidance. And we'll absolutely include a link in the, to the show notes. This has been the Dad Genes Podcast. Thank you for joining our conversation on the adultification of Black children. We love hearing from our listeners. If you agree, if you disagree, if there's something that we left out, please let us know. <laughs> um, our email is info at dadgenespodcast.com. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Dad Jeans Podcast. You can also uh, hit us up and let us know what your answer would be to our question of the week. And as always, if you like what you heard, please subscribe to the pod. Give yes. us a five-star review. Yes. And until until the next time, stay safe, stay sane, and peace out. Peace. <laughs>